Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 235 of Forgotten Classics, where we are going to delve into our little treasure trove of tall tales told in taverns, my extremely occasional series that's had one entry. (laughs) So, we will be listening to something by Arthur C. Clarke today. But first, let's have the podcast highlight. And I have a double dip for you of sorts. I was on SFF Audio this week, and they had, let's see, Seth from SFF Audio, Jesse, of course, from SFF Audio, and Jimmy Rogers from Synthetic Voices. And we all talked about the different sorts of podcasts that we like to listen to. History podcasts, fiction, of course, and a lot of speculative fiction, which is what everybody likes to group science fiction, fantasy, horror, all that sort of thing under these days. It's a newfangled phrase. Anyway, it was really a lot of fun, and although the podcast episode itself seems intimidatingly long, I think it kind of zips along, and I actually listened to it again to make better notes about a few things to try out myself, so I definitely recommend that. Now, for something that's a little shorter and a little more directed, the actual podcast highlight is Jimmy Rogers' Synthetic Voices. Jesse at SFF had already directed me to this one, which I just hadn't noticed for some reason, and It's such a great source of different podcast episodes that I wanted to be sure you knew about it. Every month, Jimmy puts out a half hour at the most. Golly, I guess a lot of them are like maybe 20 minutes long. Anyway, he puts out an episode where he's telling you about the best speculative fiction, short stories, generally from new authors, that you can just go pick off of different feeds. So you might get some horror from, you know, a couple of spots. You might even get adventure. You might get maybe romance if it's set in the future. I mean, he goes to a lot of work. He said he listens to 60 podcasts a month in order to get the handful that he gives you. It's also a great way to find new podcasts or try them out if you've maybe heard me mention them or seen them mentioned somewhere but didn't want to invest the time to find a good example to try. I like it because a lot of these podcasts I have listened to often devotedly in the past, but you know how I am. I flutter here and I flutter there because I tend to accumulate podcasts the way I accumulate books. And every so often I have to go through and do a purging of all except what I'm interested in at that moment or that seem like something I can't live without. And then gradually I add them back in and have to do it again. So what I like is this reminds me of some of the podcasts I have really enjoyed in the past. It shows me some ways I can revisit them and not have to make a gigantic investment of time because it can be very intimidating, as we know, to sign up for a podcast and then see, whoa, 120 episodes pop up. Most unique of all, what Jimmy does is very intelligently, very entertainingly, actually, 
describe what each of these episodes is like so you really get a good sense of if it's a story you might like to try. He not only gives a sense of what the story is about with a very brief description, but he tells you why he liked it. He'll say, wow, I have never seen world building like this, or oh my goodness, I've never seen a story told from these points of view so disinterestedly, but yet that pulls you in so much. So he's giving you more than just a plain description. And eventually, if you listen to him describe them and you listen to the episodes that he's recommending, you're going to see where you and he coincide on your likes and dislikes, and you'll really be able to pick out some great stuff based on his recommendations. It's really a great resource, and I don't know of anything else like it in the podcast world right now. So definitely stop by and take a look or a listen and give it a try. Now, to our own podcast, which is pretty darn short this week, but it's because I'm reading an Arthur C. Clarke story from Tales from the White Heart. I would guess Arthur C. Clarke's name is familiar to everyone, even if they don't read much science fiction, just because of 2001, A Space Odyssey, which interestingly came from a short story he wrote, and then the movie people asked him to write the script for the movie. I was never a huge fan of the movie. I was never actually a huge fan of Arthur C. Clarke's novels. The interesting thing about him, I think, is that unlike, say, Ray Bradbury, who was largely fantasy, and who we know is a favorite of mine, Arthur C. Clarke is much more science-based. For one thing, he was a scientist, and he was always kind of inclined to that really technical world. During World War II, he was in the Royal Air Force as a radar specialist and worked on the early morning radar defense system. And then after the war, he earned a degree in mathematics and physics. And he also was really well known for being able to predict a lot of developments or inventions that would happen in the future. He was an inventor. He loved Sri Lanka and actually wound up going out there to live during the later part of his life. Did a lot of scuba diving, discovered an underwater city that had been drowned by the ocean, you know. I mean, this was a man of parts. He was a he was a correspondent with a lot of famous science fiction authors. He wrote a lot of nonfiction. He hosted television shows. I mean, the guy was busy and seems to me had a very active and fulfilled life doing all this stuff. So naturally, his science and futuristic interests were reflected in his novels, which I found to be, um, how would you say it, a bit underdeveloped in the character side now, I'm more interested in the character side of books, usually. So those weren't such a big deal for me. But what I loved were his short pieces of fiction, his short stories, essentially. And he wrote an awful lot of those, and some of them were very influential. As anybody who's listened to this podcast knows, it was his introduction, and of course now I'm blanking on it, to a collection of Tales Told in Taverns, essentially, written by a science fiction or fantasy author, where he said he started writing the Tales from the White Heart 
because he wanted to show scientists had a sense of humor. And I think that's kind of funny because, for one thing, from his novels, you would never pick that up, and also from some of his serious short fiction. And then when you read Tales from the White Heart and a few of his other short stories, too, you'll just see he's funny. It's really funny. And so that introduction, which I know I read as a sample of something on Kindle, got me started looking for all these other books that he mentioned that I'd never heard of. That's why I read A Daughter of Ramesses by Lord Dunsany, one of the Joseph Jorgens stories, one of the very first of that subgenre, shall we say. And what's kind of interesting, too, is that some of the things he wrote about in these particular stories came to be, which is why people would always say, what a futurist he was, you know, which happens with a lot of the best imaginative science fiction authors, I would add. He says in the introduction to The White Heart that people have often asked him if it actually existed. And he says it does because he based the background and a few of the incidental characters on The White Horse. That was just north of Fleet Street in London, and it's a place he and a lot of science fiction writers used to hang out. For his stories, of course, he uses that same setting, he says, from his first story. From the outside, it looks just like any other pub, as indeed it is for five days of the week. The public and saloon bars are on the ground floor. There are the usual vistas of brown oak paneling and frosted glass, the bottles behind the bar, the handles of the beer engines. Nothing out of the ordinary at all. Indeed, the only concession to the 20th century is the jukebox in the public bar. It was installed during the war in a laughable attempt to make GIs feel at home. And one of the first things we ever did was to make sure there was no danger of its ever working again. As he describes the we the narrator is speaking of, it is a group comprised mostly of writers like journalists, story writers, editors, scientists, and people associated with that industry, so to speak, or discipline. And then, you know, whoever else kind of finds out about it and shows up a lot. So essentially, they're all interested in science or stories or overlaps of them, which is the perfect setting. And of course, his main storyteller, like all these people who have a main storyteller, as we met with Joseph Jorgens, is Harry Purvis, who is not a scientist, but he works for a firm that supplies equipment to scientists. So this is brilliant because it allows him to move around, see a lot of scientists, and gather all these stories. One of the running jokes in these stories is that everybody will say, I want to see that invention that's so fabulous that you're talking about. And he'll say, oh, well, because of this situation, it disappeared, it blew up, it can't be seen, whatever. And so that's kind of always the punchline to the whole thing. These stories, like pretty much everything Arthur C. Clarke did, are still in copyright. However, this one is so short, and I want to give you a little sample because for most people, well, yeah, I would say for most people, this is one of the few collections like this that is still available. So most people have met this kind of tall tales and tavern story told by Arthur C. Clarke first. If they went off and found the others, there are a few people writing, most notably the Binscombe Tales, and I need to write to um, the author of those, John Whitburn, to make sure and see if I can get permission to read up one of them. But the other ones I've mentioned are 
older and people find them later the way I did because of seeing them mentioned and they're hard to find. So this is very short. And I think that under the fair use idea, I think it's going to just give you a little sample and make you look for more of Arthur C. Clarke's writing. I know that I was talking to my mother several months ago, but because of some of the great deals offered by Kindle on especially the short story collections from Arthur C. Clarke, she was saying, wow, she wished she hadn't let so long go by between reading his short story collections from, you know, when they were coming out to now. She said, what an excellent writer he was. And I want you to experience that because I think we forget it with some of these older collections. And this guy's a classic. The short stories are easier to kind of get your teeth into for me than the novels. So if you tried one of his novels, which is where a lot of people go because they're very famous, Rendezvous with Rama, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Childhood's End, these short stories are going to give you a better entree. So are we ready? Well, come on in. You know the jukebox isn't playing. There are just a lot of us having beer and waiting for the story to begin. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The Ultimate Melody by Arthur C. Clarke Have you ever noticed that when there are 20 or 30 people talking together in a room, there are occasional moments when everyone becomes suddenly silent, so that for a second there is a sudden vibrating emptiness that seems to swallow up all sound? I don't know how it affects other people, but when it happens it makes me feel cold all over. Of course, the whole thing's merely caused by the laws of probability, but somehow it seems more than a mere coinciding of conversational pauses. It's almost as if everybody is listening for something, They don't know what. At such moments, I say to myself, but at my back I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near. That's how I feel about it, however cheerful the company in which it happens. Yes, even if it's in the white heart. It was like that one Wednesday evening when the place wasn't quite as crowded as usual. The silence came as unexpectedly as it always does. Then, probably in a deliberate attempt to break that unsettling feeling of suspense, Charlie Willis started whistling the latest hit tune. I don't even remember what it was. I only remember that it triggered off one of Harry Purvis's most disturbing stories. Charlie, he began quietly enough. That darn tune's driving me mad. I've heard it every time I switched the radio on for the last week. There was a sniff from John Christopher. You ought to stay tuned to the third program, then you'd be safe. Some of us, retorted Harry, don't care for an exclusive diet of Elizabethan madrigals. But don't let's quarrel about that, for heaven's sake. Has it ever occurred to you that there's something rather fundamental about hit tunes? What do you mean? Well, they come along out of nowhere, and then for weeks everybody's humming them, just as Charlie did then. The good ones grab hold of you so thoroughly that you just can't get them out of your head. They go round and round for days, and then suddenly they've vanished again. I know what you mean, said Art Vincent. There are some melodies that you can take or leave, but others stick like treacle whether you want them or not. 
Precisely. I got saddled that way for a whole week with the big theme from the finale of Sibelius too. Even went to sleep with it running round inside my head. Then there's that third man piece. Da di da di da di da di da. Look what that did to everybody. Harry had to pause for a moment until his audience had stopped zithering. When the last plonk had died away, he continued, "Precisely, you all felt the same way. Now, what is there about these tunes that has that effect? Some of them are great music, others just banal, but they've obviously got something in common." "Go on," said Charlie. "We're waiting." "I don't know what the answer is," replied Harry. And what's more, I don't want to, for I know a man who found out. Automatically, someone handed him a beer so that the tenor of his tale would not be disturbed. It always annoyed a lot of people when he had to stop in mid-flight for a refill. I don't know why it is," said Harry Purvis, "that most scientists are interested in music, but it's an undeniable fact. I've known several large labs that had their own amateur symphony orchestras." Some of them quite good too, as far as the mathematicians are concerned. One can think of obvious reasons for this fondness. Music, particularly classical music, has a form which is almost mathematical. And then, of course, there's the underlying theory: harmonic relations, wave analysis, frequency distribution, and so on. It's a fascinating study in itself, and one that appeals strongly to the scientific mind. Moreover, it doesn't, as some people might think. Preclude a purely aesthetic appreciation of music for its own sake. However, I must confess that Gilbert Lister's interest in music was purely cerebral. He was primarily a physiologist, specializing in the study of the brain. So, when I said that his interest was cerebral, I meant it quite literally. Alexander's ragtime band and the choral symphony were all the same to him. He wasn't concerned with the sounds themselves, but only what happened when they got past the ears and started doing things to the brain. And an audience as well educated as this said, "Harry, with an emphasis that made it sound positively insulting, there will be no one who's unaware of the fact that much of the brain's activity is electrical. There are, in fact, steady pulsing rhythms going on all the time, and they can be detected and analyzed by modern instruments." This was Gilbert Lister's line of territory. He could stick electrodes on your scalp, and his amplifiers would draw your brain waves on yards of tape. Then he could examine them and tell you all sorts of interesting things about yourself. Ultimately, he claimed it would be possible to identify anyone from their encephalogram, to use the correct term, more positively than by fingerprints. A man might get a surgeon to change his skin. But if we ever got to the stage when surgery could change your brain, well, you'd have turned into somebody else anyway, so the system still wouldn't have failed. It was while he was studying the alpha, beta, and other rhythms in the brain that Gilbert got interested in music. He was sure that there must be some connection between musical and mental rhythms. He'd play music at various tempos to his subjects and see what effect it had on their normal brain frequencies. As you might expect, it had a lot, and the discoveries he made led Gilbert on into more philosophical fields. I only had one good talk with him about his theories. It was not that he was at all secretive. <laughs> I've never met a scientist who was, come to think of it. 
but he didn't like to talk about his work until he knew where it was leading. However, what he told me was enough to prove that he'd opened up a very interesting line of territory, and thereafter I made rather a point of cultivating him. My firm supplied some of his equipment, but I wasn't averse to picking up a little profit on the side. It occurred to me that if Gilbert's ideas worked out, he'd need a business manager before you could whistle the opening bar of the Fifth Symphony. For what Gilbert was trying to do was lay a scientific foundation for the theory of hit tunes. Of course, he didn't think of it that way. He regarded it as a pure research project and didn't look any further ahead than a paper in the Proceedings of the Physical Society. But I spotted its financial implications at once. They were quite breathtaking. Gilbert was sure that a great melody or a hit tune made its impression on the brain because in some way it fitted in with the fundamental electrical rhythms going on in the brain. One analogy he used was, it's like a Yale key going into a lock. The two patterns have got to fit before anything happens. He tackled the problem from two angles. In the first place, he took hundreds of the really famous tunes in classical and popular music and analyzed their structure, their morphology, as he put it. This was done automatically in a big harmonic analyzer that sorted out all the frequencies. Of course, there was a lot more to it than this, but I'm sure you've got the basic idea. At the same time, he tried to see how the resulting patterns of waves agreed with the natural electrical vibrations of the brain because it was Gilbert's theory, and this is where we get into rather deep philosophical waters, that all existing tunes were merely crude approximations to one fundamental melody. Musicians had been groping for it down the centuries, but they didn't know what they were doing, because they were ignorant of the relation between music and mind. Now that this had been unraveled, it should be possible to discover the ultimate melody. Huh, said John Christopher. It's only a rehash of Plato's theory of ideals. You know, all the objects of our material world are merely crude copies of the ideal chair or table or what have you. So your friend was after the ideal melody. And did he find it? I'll tell you, continued Harry imperturbably. It took Gilbert about a year to complete his analysis, and then he started on the synthesis. To put it crudely, he built a machine that would automatically construct patterns of sound according to the laws that he'd uncovered. He had banks of oscillators and mixers. In fact, he modified an ordinary electronic organ for this part of the apparatus, which were controlled by his composing machine. In the rather childish way that scientists like to name their offspring, Gilbert had called this device Ludwig. <laughs> Maybe it helps to understand how Ludwig operated if you think of him as a kind of kaleidoscope working with sound rather than light. But he was a kaleidoscope set to obey certain laws, and those laws, so Gilbert believed, were based on the fundamental structure of the human mind. If he could get the adjustments correct, Ludwig would be bound sooner or later to arrive at the ultimate melody as he searched through all the possible patterns of music. I had one opportunity of hearing Ludwig at work, and it was uncanny. The equipment was the usual nondescript mess of electronics which one meets in any lab. It might have been a mock-up of a new computer, a radar gun sight, a traffic control system, <laughs> or a ham radio. It was very hard to believe that if it worked, it would put every composer in the world out of business. Or would it? 
Perhaps not. Ludwig might be able to deliver the raw material, but surely it would still have to be orchestrated. Then the sound started to come from the speaker. At first, it seemed to me that I was listening to the five-finger exercises of an accurate but completely uninspired pupil. Most of the themes were quite banal. The machine would play one, then ring the changes on it, bar after bar, until it had exhausted all the possibilities before going on to the next. Occasionally, a quite striking phrase would come up, but on the whole, I was not at all impressed. However, Gilbert explained this was only a trial run and that the main circuits had not yet been set up. When they were, Ludwig would be far more selective. At the moment, he was playing everything that came along. He had no sense of discrimination. When he acquired that, then the possibilities were endless. That was the last time I ever saw Gilbert Lister. I had arranged to meet him at the lab about a week later when he expected to have made substantial progress. As it happened, I was about an hour late for my appointment. And that was very lucky for me. When I got there, they had just taken Gilbert away. His lab assistant, an old man who'd been with him for years, was sitting distraught and disconsolate among the tangled wiring of Ludwig. It took me a long time to discover what had happened and still longer to work out the explanation. There was no doubt of one thing. Ludwig had finally worked. The assistant had gone off to lunch while Gilbert was making the final adjustments, and when he came back an hour later, the laboratory was pulsing with one long and very complex melodic phrase. Either the machine had stopped automatically at that point, or Gilbert had switched it over to repeat. At any rate, he had been listening for several hundred times at least to that same melody, When his assistant found him, he seemed to be in a trance. His eyes were open, yet unseeing, his limbs rigid. Even when Ludwig was switched off, it made no difference. Gilbert was beyond help. What had happened? Well, I suppose we should have thought of it, but it's so easy to be wise after the event. It's just as I said at the beginning. If a composer, working merely by rule of thumb, can produce a melody which can dominate your mind for days on end. Imagine the effect of the ultimate melody for which Gilbert was searching. Suppose it existed, and I'm not admitting it does. It would form an endless ring in the memory circuits of the brain. It would go round and round forever, obliterating all other thoughts. All the cloying melodies of the past would be mere ephemerae compared to it. Once it had keyed into the brain and distorted the circling waveforms, which are the physical manifestations of consciousness itself, that would be the end. And that is what happened to Gilbert. They've tried shock therapy, everything, but it's no good. The pattern has been set and it can't be broken. He's lost all consciousness of the outer world and has to be fed intravenously. He never moves or reacts to external stimuli. But sometimes, they tell me, he twitches in a peculiar way, as if he is beating time. I'm afraid there's no hope for him. Yet I'm not sure if his fate is a horrible one, or whether he should be envied. Perhaps, in a sense, he's found the ultimate reality that philosophers like Plato are always talking about. I really don't know. And sometimes, I find myself wondering just what that infernal melody was like, and almost wishing that I'd been able to hear it perhaps once. 
There might have been some way of doing it in safety. Remember how Ulysses listened to the song of the sirens and got away with it? But there'll never be a chance now, of course. I was waiting for this, said Charles Willis nastily. I suppose the apparatus blew up or something, so that as usual there's no way of checking your story. Harry gave him his best, more in sorrow than in anger look. The apparatus was quite undamaged, he said severely. What happened next was one of those completely maddening things for which I shall never stop blaming myself. You see, I'd been too interested in Gilbert's experiment to look after my firm's business in the way that I should. I'm afraid he had fallen badly behind with his payments, and when the accounts department discovered what had happened to him, they acted quickly. I was only off for a couple of days on another job, and when I got back, do you know what had happened? They'd pushed through a court order and had seized all their property. Of course, that had meant dismantling Ludwig. When I saw him next, he was just a pile of useless junk, and all because of a few pounds. It made me weep. I'm sure of it, said Eric Maine. But you've forgotten loose end number two. What about Gilbert's assistant? He went into the lab while the gadget was going full blast. Why didn't it get him, too? You've slipped up here, Harry. H. Purvis Esquire paused only to drain the last few drops from his glass and to hand it silently to Drew. Really? he said. Is this a cross-examination? I didn't mention the point because it was rather trivial, but it explains why I was never able to get the slightest inkling of the nature of that melody. You see, Gilbert's assistant was a first-rate lab technician, but he'd never been able to help much with the adjustments to Ludwig, for he was one of those people who are completely tone-deaf. To him, the ultimate melody meant no more than a couple of cats on a garden wall. Nobody asked him any more questions. We all, I think, felt the desire to commune with our thoughts. There was a long, brooding silence before the white heart resumed its usual activities. And even then, I noticed, it was every bit of ten minutes before Charlie started whistling La Ronde again. I just love those white heart stories. They're all like that. They all use science, logic, a bit of humor, sometimes a lot of humor, and then the additional twist at the end when they try to get him. He always has a reason. He always has an answer because guess what? Oh, the story's probably true, right? These are a great entree into Arthur C. Clarke if you haven't tried him before. And if you have tried him before, as I said, especially the longer works, the novels, you might look for a copy of these. They're pretty easily available, Amazon, you know, your library, all kinds of places. And then that may open up the wider world of Arthur C. Clarke for you. I find it interesting, too, that there are no recordings of this book available. It seems to me this would be ripe for having a wonderful recording artist do all of them. Oh, I'd love to listen to those. Wouldn't those be great? A whole book full of them? Oh, well. Now that does make me think, though, of the story I was talking about moving on with next, which is The Cricket on the Hearth by Charles Dickens. And I think 
I'm going to go with the doing a chirp each time. So these are going to be longer ones, but I'll be able to do them closer to Christmas, have them end up close to Christmas Day, and that will leave us some time for a few more short stories before we start those two. Which, okay, let's face it, that's my real impetus. <laughs> I, I want to do some more short stories. Don't you guys want some too? I knew you did. And I would like to also say, for After Cricket on the Hearth, I've had a request from Ken in Hawaii to do another book similar to The Green Girl, which I did some time ago by Jack Williamson, if you recall. And if you don't, go listen. It's a glorious piece of wonderful science fiction pulp. Well, Jesse at SFF Audio has come through again. What a guy, you know? That's where I got The Green Girl. This one's called The Warrior Queen of Mars by Alexander Blade. It is a, well, I guess we would say a novella. It's too long to be done in one episode, so it will be several, as The Green Girl was. But I just wanted to give you that to look forward to. So we will go from a few short stories to Charles Dickens to Alexander Blade and The Warrior Queen of Mars. And then who knows? The sky's the limit, right? Suggestions are obviously welcome, but I have a few ideas of my own to pursue. So the future is mysterious and exciting. I did mean to get this podcast out a bit earlier. I was pretty proud of hitting that weekly goal for a while, but it is fall. Anyone who's listened for a while knows I have a big annual project a big catalog that I work on each year, and this is that time of year. Very luckily for me, it is much easier this year. Not so much redesign, more of price changes, rearranging, that sort of thing. So I'm working longer hours at the office, but my weekends and evenings are free, so that is very nice. On other news, (laughs) besides my personal work life, I'm going to be on SFF Audio talking about Frankenstein. And that will be with Jesse, of course, because it's SFF Audio, and Scott Danielson, who does A Good Story is Hard to Find with me. So that should be really fun. I will be talking with Scott on A Good Story is Hard to Find about the movie Lincoln that Steven Spielberg did recently. What a movie. What a topic we're going to have. You know, history, American government, the Civil War, and one of my personal real-life heroes, Abraham Lincoln. That's going to be great. And what else is going on? It's after Halloween, so that means the very next day when I walked into my grocery store, it was all decked out for Christmas. Too soon! Too soon! Wow. Anyway, at least they aren't playing Christmas songs yet. I think they wait until Thanksgiving for that. So that's something. And I'm going to say, it's not as if I didn't take the opportunity to grab some of their peppermint bark and uh, stash it away because that stuff goes fast. They never have enough. So it's an ill wind that blows no good, huh? Otherwise, it's just getting to be fall. It's a little chilly, which makes my friends up north just laugh at me when I say, oh my gosh, it was 50 degrees this morning when I went for a walk. I had to wear a coat. And they're like, I bet you did. 
yes, yes, I did. I'm that weak and I don't mind admitting it. Also, I am coming to the end of my long, slow reading of The Lord of the Rings. Oh my gosh, you guys, what a fantastic book. I love it so much. I don't think I could pick it right back up and start reading it again when I'm done, but oh, I'm going to be tempted. So I'm going to get some other Tolkien stuff instead, some of his short stories. And uh, that will give me some of that Tolkien goodness without having to delve quite so deeply into Middle Earth. Oh, and this weekend, we're going to see a documentary about Muscle Shoals, the town in Alabama, where so many talented musicians have come from. We happen to know some people who work with Billy Reed, who's a clothing designer, who lives in Muscle Shoals. He loves it so much. And because we know these people, Tom, my husband, is on their mailing list. Because believe me, we aren't in Billy Reed's price range generally. However, because Billy Reed loves Muscle Shoals so much, he sent out in his email codes so that you could see if you could get into one of the three days worth of showings they're having in Dallas, and we were ready to do it. We were ready to pay because it just sounded interesting, and the trailer looked good, which I will link to, but they're free. They're all free. I'm very excited, so I will let you know all about that later. Oh, and speaking of things that are free, that are great, like podcasts, yes, October was our fundraising month for podcasts, but I would like to draw your attention to a specific plea that has been made in the podcasting world by the Escape Pod Artist Network. I think that's what they call it. You know, it's Escape Pod, it's Podcastle, it's Pseudopod. These three podcasts consistently put out really great fiction that they pay for, So it's generally new fiction. They get really great narrators to read for them, which is why I was so flattered that one time they asked me to read something. And it's all free. And it's weekly. Well, they're having a money crisis. They're going to have to stop making the podcasts if they don't have some donations. So if you have some money and you have not done your fundraising yet, or you listen to them at all, Well, if you listen to them at all, you already know about this. But if you've listened to them or listen occasionally, give them a few bucks. If everybody who listened gave just a few dollars, they would have more than enough, I'm sure. So go buy there. That's the special fundraising plea. Now, back to what I was going to say before, which is I hope you have something fun and unexpected to do this weekend, like us going, ooh, Muscle Shoals, hey, and... The theater has cocktails. We'll go early to make sure we get a decent seat, have some cocktails, watch the movie, go out to dinner. Voila, unexpected date. Super fun. I hope you have something like that. And if not, take advantage of something you didn't expect. And as always, thank you so much for coming by to listen. I certainly would never have read this out loud otherwise. And I really love doing it. I see so much in the stories that I would never see any other way. So thanks. Have a great week, everyone. And I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.